Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. There are some Bibles available on the table in the back there, or the uh, text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Um, we're coming toward the very end of a series that we've been doing on the life of Jesus Christ through Luke's Gospel. We've got maybe just a couple weeks left, and then um, probably uh, probably we're going to do Jonah next, just a short series in Jonah. So just to let you know where we're going. Um, but here we are in the last chapter of Luke, and we're going to spend just a couple weeks here. And let me ask you a question. Um, think about the Bible, think about the whole Bible, and what is the first word that comes to your mind? When you think about the whole Bible, what's the first word that comes to your mind? I asked this question on uh, Facebook and Twitter this week. Uh, you know, what do you feel about the the trajectory and the overall tone of the whole Bible. How do you feel about the Bible? When you think about it, what's the word that pops into your head? Uh, some of you might be thinking negative words like guilt-inspiring, <laughs> condemning, right? Uh, oppressive, archaic, irrelevant, confusing, or if you're kids, maybe boring, right? Boring. Uh, some of you might be thinking positive words like encouraging, hopeful, helpful, gracious. So when I ask that question, uh, what do you think about the Bible? How do you feel about it? What's the first thing that pops into your mind? How many of you were thinking kind of the Sunday school answer? Jesus. <laughs> I'm telling you, that's the answer you've got to memorize, <laughs> right? Um, the Bible generates a lot of different responses in us, a lot. Uh, varies from person to person, and it varies inside each person uh, from moment to moment almost, uh, what our response to the Bible is. <clears throat> but don't you think it would be good to know what the Bible's explicit point is, what the whole purpose of it is explicitly according to the scriptures themselves? Uh, what's the whole point of the Bible? Why do we have the Bible? What is it about? Thinking like broad level, general sense. Why do we have the Bible? What's it about? What is God saying to us by giving us the Bible? And the Sunday school answer is <laughs> Jesus, right? Uh, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I think, is one of the most important passages in the Bible for us to understand. I know it's kind of hard to rank parts of Scripture over against other parts. Uh, I don't mean to um, minimize or neglect any other parts of Scripture by saying this one's very important for us to understand. Um, <clears throat> this passage really clarifies for us the message of the whole Bible, what it's all about, which indicates then how we should read it and how we should respond to it. Right? Um, how we approach the Bible should be shaped by its intended purpose, don't you think? Um, how we approach it should be in, uh, shaped by God's intended purpose for it. If God inspired all the scriptures to accomplish something in particular, um, then we should take that into consideration when we think about the Bible, when we go to read this or that passage from the Bible. Right? So personally, it was transformational to me uh, to realize a few years ago from this text, from this text, and some others like it, but this one primarily, that all the scriptures are about Jesus Christ. All the scriptures are about his person and his work, who he is and what he's accomplished for us. And so if we understand what's happening in this passage, 
which is actually fairly straightforward. It's right there on the surface for us to understand, right? It's, um, it's not that difficult to understand what's happening in this passage. But if we do, it will go a long way toward helping us understand all of the Bible um, and to see that it can all be summarized as good news. It really can all be summarized as good news for us. So let's pray, and then we'll read from Luke's Gospel. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, we confess that even though um, what you're saying to us is right there on the page in front of us, right there in our own language even, it can still be hard for us to understand it, and um, even harder for us, maybe even impossible for us to accept it, to accept what you're saying. So we pray that you would do what only you do um, in overcoming our defenses, overcoming the obstacles that exist in our hearts and in our minds, to being able to understand what you have clearly communicated to us in the gospel, in this, this your word, your truth, the scriptures. We pray that you would help us to understand it and to be changed by it according to your will. We pray this through the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening. And the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened opened to, to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, And returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, 
saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So as Luke stated, um, if you remember several months ago when we started this, series uh, out of Luke's gospel on the life of Christ, he stated in the introduction, the first couple verses to his gospel, that he is writing a well-researched, orderly account of the life of Jesus Christ that's based on the testimony of eyewitnesses. And so in this last chapter, in chapter 24, he comes to the part that is hardest to swallow. It's hardest for, for anybody to believe what is being recorded in Luke 24. The crucified Jesus, alive again, alive forever, alive bodily, made new and immortal in ways that we cannot comprehend. And so Luke is extra careful here in this last chapter to provide uh, eyewitness references to verify these events so that we can have confidence, like he said at the beginning of the gospel, so we can have certainty about these things. And so he names Cleopas as one of the two disciples here on the road to Emmaus, and the other is probably actually his wife, Um, who is identified in John's gospel in chapter 19, verse 25, says that Mary, the wife of Clopas, who's probably the same person, Clopas, Cleopas, uh, one of the women who was with Jesus at the cross. So they had been with the disciples. They'd been with the other followers of Jesus that week. They had witnessed the, uh, the death of Christ on the cross, and they had heard the report of the women at the empty tomb that very morning. The tomb was empty, Everyone was confused. It was just too hard to believe that Jesus was risen from the grave, so these disciples were heading home. That very day, it seems maybe they gave up quickly. Uh, Their depression got the better of them, maybe. But that first Easter Sunday, they were heading home. And maybe they lived in Emmaus, or maybe it was just on their way, but they were were heading there. It was about a seven-mile journey, and uh, probably planning to arrive in Emmaus late, around dinner time, which is what they say when they invite Jesus uh, to stay with them. It's, it's evening, the day is spent. And how could they help but uh, talk with each other about all these things that had happened? Right? That, that very day, that very first Easter Sunday, whatever reason they had for leaving Jerusalem and walking seven miles to Emmaus that day, uh, this is what's going on in their minds and in their hearts. All the things that had happened this week in Jerusalem. They and everyone in Jerusalem had just ridden a huge emotional roller coaster. <laughs> Right? And they weren't sure that the whole thing hadn't just crashed and burned. They still weren't sure. And in verses 15 and 16, it says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Right? So this is the first appearance of the risen Lord in Luke's account. And if you're making a movie about the gospel story, this is the climax you're making a movie, this is the climax, right? Where he appears, the risen Lord Jesus, back from the grave, bodily immortal. This is the climax, but he went unrecognized by his disciples. And the language, in fact, uh, makes it clear that they were not allowed to recognize him. They were not allowed. The clear implication is that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. And this kind of language is common throughout the scriptures, little hints here and there, just little phrases that are easy to overlook, you know, here and there of uh, God's absolutely sovereign orchestration 
to bring about his purposes in the history of, it, of Israel, the history of the church, the history and the record of salvation that we see in the scriptures, right? It's not clear exactly why they couldn't recognize Jesus, how it was possible that they could walk and talk together for probably a few hours uh, and not realize that this was, in fact, the risen Lord Jesus. You know, maybe it was a feature of the newness of his glorified resurrection body, uh, or maybe it was due to their overwhelming grief and uh, their just firm, locked-in presupp presuppositions about death. You know, you don't come back from death, um, blinding them maybe even to the possibility of this being Jesus. The text doesn't say. The text doesn't say why it was they didn't recognize him. It just hints at the fact that it wasn't quite God's timing yet for Jesus to be fully revealed to them. It was just a bit too early in their encounter for celebration. And the story had to play out a little bit more for their sake and for our sake. So uh, he said to them, Jesus said in verse 17, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad, right? It was apparently hard for them even to talk about it. Um, and the, the good news of the resurrection that they had heard earlier that day obviously hadn't registered for them yet in any kind of meaningful way. It just seems like they're still kind of gripped by despair and grief. Right? They're looking sad at one another. Um, and one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And, and he said to them, What things? So, so this is a confirmation of the public nature of the events of the week prior. Right? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? And there are several hundred thousand people in Jerusalem at this time of year for the Passover, for the feast that happens around Passover. Uh, there's a lot of people there, and everybody knew about it. Everybody knew what had happened to Jesus. Christianity is based not on private spiritual experiences. Christianity is uh, not just a set of ideas. It's based on real, historical, very public events. These things were not done in a corner, as Paul pointed out later, as he... Uh, gave his testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26. These things were not done in a corner. So <clears throat> I can't tell whether Jesus is being humorous when he says to them what things, you know, whether he's being humorous, sort of kind of teasing the story out of them, or um, whether he's being very sensitive, maybe, wanting to hear their account of their woes, you know, or uh, maybe he's just setting himself up to hit the ball out of the park with his follow-up. He asks him a question that leads him into what he says next. But <clears throat> they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Um, here was Jesus evidently, clearly, publicly, well-known as a unique, important figure, someone with more potential than anyone ever had before, um, the kind of person that you could get in behind because he's going places, right? And the place where he went was the cross. All the public officials turned out to be his enemies. They all conspired against him. They killed him. Our hopes were deflated. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to be the one to deliver us out of this Roman oppression is basically what they were saying, uh, thinking at that point. 
But N.T. Wright says about this in his um, commentary. It's a good little commentary. Um, he says, Cleopas's puzzled statement only needs the slightest twist to turn it into a joyful statement of early Christian faith. They said, they crucified him, but we had hoped he would redeem Israel. Would shortly become, they crucified him, and that was how he did redeem Israel. And it was, of course, the resurrection that made the difference. Um, so he was the one who did redeem Israel. They thought their hopes were dashed, and uh, they thought that he was going to redeem Israel in the way that they understood it. But instead, he redeemed Israel in the way God intended it, which uh, shows up that the same word for redeem shows up a couple other places in the New Testament. It says in Titus chapter 2, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, you were ransomed. It's that same word. You were redeemed. You were ransomed. You were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were redeemed. You were ransomed by his blood. Right? They crucified him, and that was how he did redeem Israel, and that had been God's plan all along. But this was still opaque to them. This was still uh, something they couldn't understand. And so they continued, yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So, like we said last week, uh, their, their slow, weak faith was just starting to catch on to the tremendous reality of the good news that God had orchestrated, and it was about to get a serious jump start right here, right? Their slow, weak faith. It, things weren't making sense to them still. Here, here comes the jump start from Jesus. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these verses, these words here are some of the most profound, wonderful words in all scripture because these verses contain the key to all the scripture. These verses contain the key to all the scriptures. And Jesus is gently rebuking his disciples here. He's probably um, not scolding them too harshly for the emotional state that they're in. But um, he's gently rebuking them, saying, you should have known better than to be dismayed. You should have known better than to be dismayed because they knew the scriptures, right? And for them, that was the Old Testament. Uh, what we have is the Old Testament. They knew the Hebrew scriptures, but apparently they hadn't understood the scriptures or the way that he puts it is that they were slow of heart to believe the scriptures, to actually let what is in the scriptures inform their lives, make a difference in their hearts and in their minds, Jesus says the scriptures were written about him. They're written about his person, his work, his life and death and resurrection. If, if these verses contain the key to the scriptures, it's because here Jesus tells us that he is the key. 
Jesus is the key to the scriptures. He tells his disciples the meaning of the word of God that they always point to him for he is the word of God incarnate. He's the word of God in the flesh as John says in his gospel. God is speaking in the scriptures because he has something to say. He has an intended purpose in giving us the whole Bible. He's speaking because he has something to say and that something is Jesus Christ, the son of God, must suffer and enter into his glory. That's what Jesus, uh, that's that's what God is saying to us in the scriptures. And Jesus doesn't just make this declaration that the scriptures point to him. He doesn't just make it as a declaration and then move on. He actually goes on to give kind of Old Testament 101 to the luckiest couple who ever lived. Um, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is one way of saying all the Bible, uh, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he does the same again uh, later in the chapter when he's back in Jerusalem with all the disciples there. And we'll look at that next week. But he's not just singling out a few kind of obvious texts, right? He's not just singling out just the messianic texts from the scriptures. He's showing how the overarching themes, the whole tone, the details, the ultimate trajectory of the Bible, everything, everything is about him. The Old Testament is a preparation it lays the framework for our understanding of who Jesus is and what he would do, the person and work of Christ. And it lays that framework in intricate ways, comprehensive ways, infinitely complex ways. You cannot plumb the depths of even the Old Testament to discover Christ there in all the ways that he's presented. The Old Testament describes shadows, which the New Testament points out. These, uh, these are fulfilled Jesus Christ is the heavenly reality of all of these shadows. The Old Testament prophesies and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies. The Old Testament points out our misery and our need. And sometimes it's just because it portrays something as bleak and empty and hopeless and meaningless that we know there has to be something else. And Jesus is the provision. He's the answer. You know, in the Old Testament, we often sense a yawning darkness and an emptiness and a despair that almost requires there to be light and fullness and hope, all of which are found in Jesus Christ. Things are broken. There has to be a fix. There has to be. And everywhere you get hints of God's plan to fix things. Everywhere in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you're told about covenants and a priesthood and a vicarious sacrifice and the holy presence of God all mediated to us ultimately through the great high priest, through Jesus Christ, who was sacrificed, the lamb without blemish or spot, to be our substitutionary atonement and our purification, the one who reconciles us to God. In the Old Testament, we're told of prophets and oracles and declarations of judgment and declarations of grace, the revelation of God and his will, all looking forward to the ultimate prophet the ultimate prophet, the very word of God himself, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we're told of kings and kingdoms. We're told of deliverance from oppression, victory over enemies, all looking forward to the Prince of Peace whose rule would have no end until all of his enemies were submitted underneath his feet. Whether it's in individual passages 
or swaths of whole groups of books in the Old Testament. Everywhere, the Bible proclaims the necessity of Jesus Christ and the provision of Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the creator of everything. He's the goal of everything. He's the, the great rescue plan. He's the yes and amen to all the good promises of God. The whole Old Testament is a testimony in anticipation of him, his person and his work. And, and I might add, even though it maybe strikes us as obvious, uh, the whole New Testament is about him too, right? The whole New Testament looks back to him as the Old Testament looked forward to him. And so you can't go to any part of the Bible. You cannot go to any part of the Bible and take from it a message that ignores the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't go anywhere in the Bible and ignore Jesus. And that's the pattern for all of our public reading of the scriptures. You know, when we come here to worship and we have the reading and we have the preaching of the scriptures and we have our... Um, what I would hope is a biblical worship service throughout. It, uh, this is the pattern for it. If we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to be a Christ-centered church, because uh, then, then, sorry, if we're going to be a biblical church, we are going to be a Christ-centered church, right? Because the whole Bible is, according to its own testimony, Christ-centered. And he's not only, this is not only the reason for the pattern that we observe in our public worship, it's also, our personal worship, our, our private devotions, our personal reading of the scriptures is to meet Jesus there because he's the point of it. He's the intended purpose of the whole Bible. And as Jesus was explaining all of this, uh, all too soon probably, their journey was over. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So not much more good traveling hours left in the day. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So again, N.T. Wright says that the fact that they couldn't recognize Jesus at first seems to have gone with the fact that they couldn't recognize the events that had just happened as the story of God's redemption. They didn't understand the Bible. They didn't understand the, the story of God's redemption. And therefore, they didn't understand Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And the fascinating thing was that God waited to reveal his son to them, to this couple, not during the amazing sermon that they heard on the road that lasted for a couple hours, probably, right? Not during that, but it was when they sat down together at the table for a meal. That's when it all clicked. That's when uh, they were even able to realize their own response to him, where they were even able to articulate their own response. It's like, yeah, our hearts were burning while he was speaking. Uh, it's when they sat down at the table, and this is the great reversal of that first terrible meal shared by a husband and wife in the Old Testament, which Nathan read in our reading this morning, when Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, 
it says, when their eyes were opened and they knew their guilt, they knew their nakedness, they knew their sin and their shame and their impending doom. This is the reversal of that. When Jesus broke bread with Cleopas and Mary, their eyes were opened to see the one who had paid their debts before God. To see the one who cast away their sins into the depths of the sea. To see the one who bore their shame and suffered their doom. Their eyes were opened to see the Savior that they needed. The Savior that was proclaimed by all the scriptures as the one that they needed. And the one that God provided. Right? Their eyes were opened at the table. It was in relationship. The table's always signifying relationship. right? Fellowship. It was in relationship with Jesus, in fellowship with Jesus, the personal communion with Jesus that is reflected in the table, that the Spirit of God opened their eyes to recognize him as the key to the Scriptures. Jesus is the key to the Scriptures, not just because all the Scriptures are about him. That is true. That's what we've been saying. He's the key not just because all the Scriptures are about him, but because you have to have a relationship with him to understand the Bible. He's the key to the scriptures because you have to know him. You have to be in relationship with him to be able to understand the scriptures. You cannot truly know the scriptures without knowing Jesus Christ personally, relationally. And you cannot truly know Jesus Christ without knowing the scriptures. Um, Because it's like a key and a lock, two separate items that apart from each other don't make much sense, there's not much use for them, but they go together. And then they have a purpose, and that purpose is clear. And that sounds a bit tricky. You can't know the scriptures without knowing Jesus, and you can't know Jesus without knowing the scriptures. That sounds a bit tricky, I know, but it's not some paradoxical formula. It's on account of him being a living person. It's because he's a living person. He's not just some religious idea, some philosophical ideal to be attained, achieved, right? He's a divine human person to be recognized with whom we all have to deal. And if you've read the Bible, but you haven't yet met Jesus there, you haven't recognized Jesus there, all you need to do is ask him to show himself to you because that's what people do. Now, the story continues on that he vanished from their sight, and this you know, is maybe due to the fact that he's God, and he can just do things like that, but probably actually also includes some of the features of his new um, glorified human body. We don't know. The fact that he could vanish from their sight, and as we'll look uh, later in Luke's gospel and in other places of the gospel, he just pops into a locked room here or vanishes there, Right? It's a, it's a feature of his human body, probably, that uh, has been glorified. We don't know exactly, but again, we'll talk about it next week. But it's implied, then, from the rest of our passage, that he immediately appeared back in Jerusalem. Right? He vanished from where this couple was, seven miles away from Jerusalem, probably immediately appeared back where he met with Simon, who was Peter, right? Because it says they rose, Cleopas and Mary probably, they rose that same hour, and the day is late. They've already eaten their meal, their evening meal. They returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven 
And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has indeed risen and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the disciples uh, here were so moved by their encounter of the risen Lord that they rushed the seven miles back to Jerusalem in the dark. It was not an easy thing to do back then. There's no streetlights. They rushed the seven miles back on foot in the dark to share the good news with their friends who confirmed that, in fact, Simon had just seen him too. Uh, Have you ever been driven by a joy like that? They were driven by their joyful encounter of Jesus, who was known to them not only in the scriptures, but in the breaking of the bread. Relationally, they met Jesus, they knew, they recognized him, and it was all starting to sink in. And their response was a joy that drove them to run in the dark seven miles back to Jerusalem to to share it with their friends. Have you had a joy like that that drives you? Have you encountered Jesus in the scriptures in such a way that you've been compelled to go and tell others? Have you had that? Um, Do you truly realize that the whole Bible is all about him? That everything God wants to say to you has to do with Jesus Christ? Everything God wants to say to you, everything that he's written down in the scriptures, everything he's inspired his prophets and apostles to record about what he's doing in the world and about who he is, is summed up in Jesus. That's good news, right? Um, Of all the things that God could have said to you, all the things that we imagine he probably wants to say to us, of all the things he could have said, he said, you need Jesus Christ, here he is given for you. The crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is God's supreme revelation to you. He's the point of the whole Bible, and that is good news indeed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, again, um, we confess with the disciples here that uh, actually Jesus confessed on their behalf that they were slow of heart to believe the things that the scriptures said concerning you and that's us Uh, we know that to be us and we pray that you would help us we thank you that even though we are slow of heart and weak of faith even though that's the case you have come to us you've revealed yourself to us even though in fact we have been rebels against you even though we've been your enemies even though when you first came into the world the best thing we could think to do with you was kill you. You have continued to pursue us in love, and that has been the whole point of all of the scriptures and uh, the point of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection for us. And so we thank you that you've done this for us in Christ. We pray that you would assure us of your love for us. Make it uh, fresh and real to us every morning as your mercies are new to us every morning. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ and the grace and the goodness proclaimed to us in the gospel about Jesus Christ in such a way that our hearts and our minds uh, would be changed, that we would be a joyful people, a people that respond to you with uh, burning hearts and a passion to share you, uh, share the gospel with our friends. We pray that you would do this in us by your Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we pray it uh, for the sake of your kingdom and in Jesus' name. Amen.